0: Welcome to this week's Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest. My guest today is Renad Mansour. Renad is a Senior Research Fellow, Middle East and North Africa Program, and Program Director of the Iraq Initiative at London's Chatham House. He'll lead a conference on Iraq at Chatham House on the 14th and 15th of November. For more on the conference, check out chathamhouse.org. Renad, welcome back to the podcast.
1: Hey, Bill. Thanks for having me again.
0: Now, you have just come back from Baghdad and uh, already, as, as, as we're speaking, you're hearing reports of rockets being fired into the green zone. Tell us a little bit about that particular
1: situation. Well, you know, this has been the longest government formation process since regime change in 2003. And one year on, uh, the parties haven't been able to form a government. And what's happened now is one side, the coordination framework, uh, led by, you know, people like Nouriel Maliki and others have made a deal with the, the Kurdish side, the KDP, the Barzanis and the Sunnis to push forward a government. But the Sadrists aren't included in this government, particularly because they withdrew their MPs uh, a few months ago. And doing so, they lost a lot of their political capital and since then have used both protests and now we're seeing violence to try and disrupt any government without them. So the scenes in Baghdad are quite tense. The government formation is very complicated and... You know, we've seen in the last year that violence is part of political negotiation in Iraq, and, and and we're seeing it with these attacks in the Green Zone as well. For people, you know, who don't have the opportunity to get
0: to Baghdad as you do, can you paint us a picture of just what life is like living in this tense political situation? How are people coping? How are they feeling? What is the security situation? Can you give our listeners a, a snapshot of? life in Baghdad today?
1: Yeah, and and, and that's a very good question, because oftentimes outside of Iraq, our attention gets drawn into the country when we see these scenes, when you see, you know, rockets being fired into the green zone or different armed groups attacking each other. That's when we kind of think, okay, there's conflict. But actually, for many people in Iraq, every day is a form of conflict for them. While these scenes and this type of direct violence definitely... Uh, you know, inhibits their, their daily life and harms them. They've been suffering for almost 20 years now. From many different types of violence, right? When you know, and and we've talked about this in the past. When they go to the pharmacy every day, the medicine they take could not be fit for consumption. Uh, the electricity they have every day hasn't been sufficient. The water isn't clean, and and the, and they get sick from from that. So while you know, yes, what's happening you know, in the green zone between the different elite fighting each other for power does have consequences, certainly for many Iraqis. Their everyday life uh, has been one of conflict of different forms and variations. And so this is just another chapter uh, of that. And
0: when, when you say that their lives are being shaped by this daily, daily struggle, I mean, how, how do you see that playing out? I mean, what, what do people say to you? Is there a sense of Despair,
1: cynicism, anger, what is the mood of the people right now? I mean the mood I think for 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 many years has been one of uh, as you say, despair, disillusionment, kind of unsure of their future. Uh, most Iraqis are under the age of you know twenty five uh, uh, you know two thirds. Many of them don't see a future in their country. Many of them feel, you know, the, the big feeling they have, Iraqis have, is of, of injustice. We are one of the wealthiest countries in the world. The budget of Iraq can, can be up to, this year, could go up to a $100 billion, right? When we talk about Iraq's economy, we're talking about the hundreds of billions, and yet... The people don't see that wealth. And so it makes them even angrier to know that because of corruption, be, you know, because of, because of the political system that was put on them after 2003, they live in such destitute where, you know, anything from healthcare to electricity to water isn't sufficient. And yet their country is incredibly wealthy. And that sense of despair is leading many of them to either, you know, try to protest. But we've seen what happens when they try to protest. It was squashed quite uh, strongly after 2019, October, known as the Tishreen movement. Some of them are leaving. Those who can are, are, are trying to leave. So you know when when young people when when they tried to address these big grievances they had their voices weren't being heard at the ballot boxes uh elections weren't changing it was always the same elite coming back together they thought why don't we try protesting and that's what october 2019 was young people go into the streets not going to sort of on one political side or the other, not calling for the downfall of one political leader or party, but of against the entire system, wanting fundamental change to the way that politics works and state society relations in Iraq. And what happened is they were, you know, the, the, the government, the Iraqi sort of regime went hard and used violence and coercion to stomp out the protests. So where we are today is Iraqis aren't, don't think that the ballot boxes, many Iraqis don't think the ballot boxes are, are, are part of a solution. They, they've they learned that protests are very dangerous and any type of mobilization and activism against uh, the system is very dangerous. So many of them are, are left with few options, you know, you could keep your head down and just continue and And many of them do just go to work, make you know if you can if you do have a job or try and somehow uh make enough money to feed you and your family, or some of them give up completely and try to leave the country and 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 we've seen that those are you know that happening especially from the north towards europe in 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 the in the last few years so there aren't many options. There aren't, there isn't a bright future. Many Iraqis don't feel there's a bright future for them. And it hurts even more for them knowing just how much wealth their country has.
0: Yes. And, and it's part of it is this system that you've written about and we've spoken about before. Muhassasa. Now, can you just remind our listeners about what that is? And, and I wonder, is it still as deeply embedded in the body politic as, as ever?
1: So the idea behind this system, uh, known, you know, in Iraq as Muhasasa, was that it was a system of governing Iraq after 2003, after removing Saddam. And the idea was that the Sunni, the Shia and the Kurds and other minorities would have their share of representation, their share of the pie, if you will, of uh, governing Iraq. In reality, what it has meant Is that those political parties that represent those identities have developed together a system of governance where they share the you know coffers of the state, where they compete and cooperate over ministry budgets, over procurement of 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 contracting, over the wealthy Iraqi state that we've been talking about so what it's meant from the political economy perspective is corruption that isn't illegal but corruption that is politically sanctioned where a se- the senior civil service of in in, in Iraq are linked to different political parties, those parties being defined along these ethno-sectarian lines, and they answer to the parties, not to the institutions, right? So if I'm a director general, for example, in a given ministry, my ultimate superior is not my minister, who may be this independent technocrat, but my ultimate authority is the party boss who has given me, uh, this job. And I am answerable not to the institution in which I work, but to the political party, which, which provides me the top cover. And in exchange, what I do is I, Ensure that all contracts in my ministry are favorable to the political party, which, which I represent in the ministry. So that's what Mahasasa has become, right? It's become a system of politically sanctioned corruption, which means that billions and billions each year across the board are siphoned outside of the Iraqi government to the different political uh, parties and ruling elite.
0: And you followed this for, for several years and do you see it as being as deep as ever
1: yeah I mean it's it's and very recently, the finance minister of Iraq, Ali Alawi, resigned. You know, in, in essence, he had gone into the post. He was, you know, with a big background in the World Bank, with, with degrees from Harvard and other institutions with ideas of how to fix corruption, with ideas of how to restore the Iraq, you know, Iraq's economy. And a few years in, He resigned. He said basically that Muhasasa is so entrenched. The political parties are so entrenched into the system that no degree from Harvard or any sort of understanding of how politics works coming in without having connectivity to power will allow anyone. To 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 sort of be able to to reform, and so to answer your question, I think certainly um, Halsasa is entrenched, and it's the reason why the system has been resilient, right? If you, if you think about it, the system has managed to go through waves of of of, of threats, whether those threats came from insurgency groups like ISIS. Or whether those threats came from protest movements like the Tishreen movement that I talked about, or anywhere else, the system has been resilient and and, and continues to to sort of move uh, forward as it's been designed to do under the guidelines of Muhasasa.
0: Mm. We we mentioned the uh, al-Sadr. Uh, he's of course the populist Shia cleric with a, with a very large following. He attempted to form a coalition after last October's election. It didn't work. And so he resorted to violence, didn't he, in in August, and and, and it's happening again now, Uh, urging his followers into an invasion of the fortified green zone, which contains the parliament and the government buildings. What is Muqtada al-Sadr's game, and and how well is
1: he playing it? This is one of the biggest questions that many policymakers and and academics, journalists, are asking about Iraq uh, today someone like Muqtada al-Sadr has been an enigmatic sort of leader, right? Leader. He has sometimes been seen to be a sort of militia leader. He was at some point, he, he proclaimed to be another point. He's been a protest leader. He's also at some points been a sort of government coalition builder and, you know, political leader in that way. So he's had all these multiple competing identities, which don't always add up. And of course, it's it's very difficult. To, for, for many people have found it difficult to rationalize or try and logically follow you know, Muqtada al-Sadr and his movement and a lot of these questions started coming up and so we decided uh, to do a deep dive into the Sadr's movement because it is so important for Iraq. It's it's sort of political trajectory, stability, uh, and, and the questions we ask at Chatham House. And part of it was what, you know, trying to understand who is Muqtada al-Sadr's audience. And because of that, we wanted to look at specifically his followers and his base. Right, it's largely known that the Sadras movement is one of the biggest Islamist movements in the region. We we also know that the base is an urban but poor group of Iraqis in in Baghdad and the south. So we decided to do a survey of 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 some of the followers in Sadr City, and this paper, which kind of presents the and findings of that, will be published shortly. But I'm happy to offer a few of the initial findings from that. Because they speak to who the Sadr is really, but also what drives some of his behaviors, which many people would say is at times erotic. Looking at the base allows us to kind of try and make some sense of a movement, the Sadr's movement, which many people at times have said is erotic and, and, and hard to make sense of. And one of the things we found is that the base is deeply cynical of the political system in Iraq right so they have very little level of tr- you know low levels of trust for the parliament the council of ministers um anything to do with politics and anyone associated with politics is seen to be rotten right this is partly the reason why someone like muqtada al sadr himself can't really be seen to be part of that process because the base itself is is so vehemently against establishment politics but of course, we know at the same time, the Sadrists and, and the system of muhasasa that we've been talking about, you know, the Sadrists are deeply entrenched in that system and, and, and need that. They profit, they generate revenue from that system. So this helps to explain why this, you know, someone like Sadr has to be both somehow an establishment leader to maintain power in Iraq, but also an anti-establishment leader to maintain popularity and this sense of populism that, that he has with his base. Another thing that we found out from the survey is that although the Sadrists have become quite powerful and quite wealthy in the last few years, having won the sort of from the 2018 elections onward, they've gained a lot of influence in the state, in government institutions, but that hasn't necessarily trickled down to the followers. So a majority of the followers we surveyed actually are still have, have precarious, unstable, day-wage kind of contracts where they try and make ends meet. They haven't, in other words, what's common in Iraq is for political leaders once they gain office, once they at least become powerful in the state to just offer jobs to their followers. This hasn't happened in the case of the Sadrists rise in Iraq's government, which reinforces the point that the Sadrists, the followers remain vehemently against the political process because they haven't benefited from it. They see the corruption, but they, you know, and, and, and they see the wealth being sent, diverted elsewhere, but they themselves have very poor standards of living, making the Sadr space poor. So all of these, you know, this survey and, and, and more of it will be in the paper, led us to sort of try and make a bit more sense of why sometimes Sadr acts the way he does. So to get back to your question, when he won the election, he didn't want to play politics as usual, because he realized that from pressure from his base, that continuing the same politics being, and, and being such a visible leader in that political negotiation process was giving him problems internally with his followers. So pushing for a majority government, pushing for something different. And when that doesn't happen, taking, you know, different risks, using this sort of system of controlled instability, is his version, is his way of trying to balance a very difficult balancing act between being a, a leader entrenched in the state, but also being a leader of a movement that's vehemently against uh, the political system.
0: Mm, that is very interesting. And as you say, it helps to explain these, these apparent contradictions in his, in his moves back and forth. And yeah, and of course, Satter City is, is, is in Baghdad, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it's, it's in, in Baghdad and it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a closed city. Um, so it's, it's, it, people, you know, you can go to Baghdad, you can, you know, you can go to Southern City, you'll see it's quite poor. But I don't think enough research, sociological research has been done and really just trying to understand these neighborhoods in Baghdad, these followers who they are and, and how, what they think and, and how they also relate to other parts of Baghdad, right? So we found very interestingly that many of the younger residents of Sadr city, followers of Sadr especially, share similar sort of disillusionments with other Iraqis that are part of the Tishreen movement, the protesters who protested in October 2019. This sense of disillusionment, you know, you could have different classes and, dif- you know, in, in Baghdad you have different neighborhoods, which are different classes, but all of them have the same sense of disillusionment of this post-2003 system, which means that it, it's a massive force and it's an important idea uh, that they all hold. Mm.
0: I want to ask you, Renat, about Iran. Many Iraqis deeply resent the degree to which Iran has inserted itself into the country. You know, it's been more than two years since the US assassination of uh, the IRGC General, Qasem Soleimani, and, 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 and of course, with, with these ongoing protests, I mean, I'm just wondering, has the Iranian, or the potency rather, of the Iranian influence waned at all, or is it still as, again, entrenched as ever?
1: I mean, I think very clearly Iran remains the most dominant foreign power in Iraq compared to the others, but that doesn't mean that Iran is, you know, all powerful and is is able to always have its, you know, ensure its interests are met in Iraq. This is the case even when Qasem Soleimani uh, was alive, for example, in 2018. His presidential candidate eventually was a deal to bring Fuad Hussein in, but that didn't work out. Um, his attempts to bring some of the different militias in to to unify them was also a struggle so for many years now, Iran has just like any other country struggled to navigate the very complex nature of elite networks uh, that that define the Iraqi state, however. Iran has been successful in being more forward-looking and understanding where certain trajectories are going and trying to sort of navigate or at least prepare for them. So Iran's influence isn't just with political parties in Iraq, which it does have good influence with not just the Shia parties, but also Sunni and Kurdish and other parties as well. But Iran also has good influence in key state institutions in Iraq. From the judiciary to other levels of, of government. So what this means is that Iran is able to apply a bit more of a coherent strategy to ensure its interests, in a way that many of its you know foreign counterparts, the Gulf, uh, other regional countries, the U.S., European countries are unable to. And so again, to 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 make the point that Iran doesn't always get its way, isn't able to always get its way, but. Compared to others, it does have more uh, levers. Let's say levers of, of of power in Iraq's elite networks. But
0: but is it the case that Iraqis resent
1: the Iranian presence? Yes, that's. I mean, that's that's definitely, and and this is a big problem for Iran as well. For for many years. Uh, it was almost assumed that because Iraq has a Shia population and, you know, it will automatically have good relations with Iran. But also because during the years, you know, of Saddam Hussein, when he was in power, many of Iraq's leaders... Shia and Kurdish actually were in exile in Iran where they developed good relations with the iranian regime. so there were these assumptions that Iran would always be seen as a uh, as a friendly neighbor as as such. but the problem became because Iran became you know was was so strong in iraq's political system after two thousand and three but more so in the recent years as Iraqis began to realize that this system is toxic, that this system isn't giving them the basic needs, basic sort of rights that that they deserve. They started to, to see, well, who's responsible for the system? Who's guiding this system? And Iran became one of the, 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 the issues that they found. Why is it that this foreign power, this neighbor, is so influential in our politics? And since then, for many years now, Iraqis have been going to the streets to protest Iran out-out. They view Iran as propping up. A system which which they find so harmful and violent against them, and because of that, those Shia Iraqis who Iran thought would would always have a good relationship with are now speaking out against Iran. Uh, meaning that Iran is losing a lot of its ideological Shiism power uh, in 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 Iraq.
0: Mm. Now we, we we've talked about the election of twenty twenty one. We're a year on now. Uh, still no agreement to. There may be a president and a prime minister this week, we don't know, but, uh, and uh, Mustafa al-Khadami, the current pre- prime minister, is still in place. He could be replaced or in, remain in place. But this political impasse, how long can it continue before something really dangerous happens?
1: You know, I've been thinking about this question and, and, and thinking through sort of, you know, trying to make sense of what this all means. And... Although when we talk about Tishreen, the October 2019 protests as not being able to bring out true reform and that the protesters felt that they didn't work, I think we are still living in a post, you know, October 2019 moment in Iraq. And what I mean by that, it fundamentally destabilized the political system, right? In a way that the prime minister was forced to resign, but it also took three different candidates to get to Mustafa al-Kadhimi then in, in in 2020. And that was the first time that the political parties were so fragmented that they couldn't just come together and, and, and decide on a candidate. And what we're seeing in this past year is another precedent, the longest government formation uh, process since 2003. So I guess the point I'm making is that Iraqi politics is to some extent in uncharted waters. The kind of elite pact, the sort of, the the way it always seemed that the elite were eventually, although they had internal issues, would come together to make deals is being challenged. And, and part of that challenge is because of this fragmentation, because The social problems, the demographic reality and the pressure from a rising youth population is forcing the elite to have to act in more destabilizing ways to ensure what they have is left, but also to tr- try and have authority over the population that they don't. That is being played out as well in the green zone between these, these leaders. So I think that the political system is in uncharted territories. The judiciary's role has been politicized. Uh, the, people are using more and more violence as a negotiating tool to try and negotiate power and 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 government positions all of this is leading to the fragmentation and the stalemate which we have which we've had for the last year
0: mm. and and as you say if violence becomes the only method then uh violence breed, breeds violence and the situation becomes ever more dangerous
1: yeah, that's right. So, you know, very clearly what we've learned in the last year is that negotiations for power aren't just, uh, making deals on economic deals, but a one way to show your force, but also to ensure your seat at the table is to say, I can completely destabilize and hoping that sort of through the, that those threats, but also the use of violence that leaders will maintain their, you know, they hope that they will maintain their spot on the table. So winning an election or doing well in election is only one part of forming a government. And another crucial part is saying, I have the means to violence to be able to disrupt.
0: You know, if I'm in the neighborhood, if I'm Saudi Arabia or the UAE, I surely must be watching the situation with some degree of consternation. Uh, Both those countries have made uh, overtures, diplomatic overtures uh, to Iraq and Iran. Um, What sort of fruit is that bearing in Baghdad?
1: It's difficult because certainly, uh, especially the Mustafa al-Kadhimi premiership has tried to push for an Iraq that's a convening power, right? And we saw that with the Baghdad summit last year, where representatives from The countries, the regional countries, came together, and it was some, somewhat, somewhat of a landmark. But the question becomes the extent to which these overtures obviously are very early, and it's very, it's still very symbolic. We haven't yet seen these overtures turn towards real change when it comes to the the situation in Iraq and the region. So countries like the UAE and Saudi Arabia have been pushing to have a greater role in Iraq, economic role, energy role, and political role. But they've struggled to tap into the political system, as I say, which is why, earlier in our conversation, I said that it's still Iran that is a more powerful foreign actor than than countries like the UAE or, or Saudi Arabia. But you know, this is their plan is to try and gain more leverage in the system and, and with Iraqi actors.
0: I want to ask you uh, also about Iraq's position on the JCPOA and, and whether, I wonder if Iraq is being consulted at all by Washington, because, you know, the Iraqis are right next door. So presumably the country has a lot to gain or lose by whatever happens in Vienna.
1: Yeah. But, uh, as you can imagine, there isn't one Iraqi position on the JCPOA. Uh, the government is quite fragmented on many issues, including the JCPOA. You know, certain groups that are closer to Iran actually want the JCPOA to go ahead because this they feel will, will allow them to have better relations else you know outside of 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 iraq and and towards the west right and this is an important point so there is support on 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 from some actors uh for a jcpoa for an opening of relations of iran into the region including from you know uh, certain groups uh linked to the pmf for example that you might not think but you know there that is the reality and obviously other groups are worried about the jcpoa and and what that might mean for empowering groups close to iran in iraq um and so i would say that there isn't one policy from the different ruling elite but in general the iraqi government's position is that the jcpoa is very important Because otherwise, Iraq faces the consequences of this, right? Iraq is the playground for the U.S.-Iran dispute, right? It is in Baghdad where the U.S. assassinated Qasem Soleimani, the Iranian general, leading to uh, a lot, you know, leading to a lot of chaos. It is in Iraq where Iran's operations against the, the U.S. occur, right? So from an Iraqi perspective in general, having conflict played out in the country is a big problem for the country. And so the government is hopeful that some solution will be reached.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay, now finally, Renat, with COP27 coming up in Sharm al-Sheikh in November, I want to ask you about the impact of climate change in Iraq and what, if anything, is being done to mitigate it
1: there has been a lot of good reporting recently on the issue of climate in Iraq and i think that you know iraq uh, has been determined to be one of the most one of the highest prone countries to climate change today it's 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 one of the worst off because of climate change and what you're seeing you know this past summer i was in baghdad and and elsewhere and like sandstorms in a way that you've never seen for for many, many years. So people are really feeling the impact of climate on, on their everyday lives. But we're also seeing stark reminders of just how, a, how much a problem something like climate can be. For example, in the South, you know, Iraq's marshes and are drying up. What that's meaning, and there's been good reporting on this, is that many of those, the people who have relied for, you know, for, for generations on a specific trade or a specific sort of agriculture, let's say, to make the ends meet, no longer have that. And so they're having to move into cities, right? You're seeing an urbanization. You're seeing migration internally because of this. And and, and as those who come from rural to urban because of climate change, you're seeing a lot of conflict societally, right, of this They're competing for jobs, which are 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 few and far between. So I would say yes, the issue of climate is an important issue for Iraq. It's a structural issue for Iraq, and many of the things we've discussed today, you know, the politics, the security situation, are all affected by this deeper, greater problem and root uh, of, of of problem, which is climate and and it's you know how it's changing in Iraq.
0: Mm. So many, so many challenges and and, and as you say, the political structure, apparently still really incapable of dealing, dealing with it. Um, I guess we, we we can only live in, in hope that things will improve.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I mean, the issue of climate, I forgot to mention, but of course, it's not just an Iraq issue. A lot of the water that Iraq needs comes from Iran and Turkey, which makes this a regional issue which complicates uh, regional negotiations and political relations between many countries in the region. So moving forward, something like COP becomes even more important because negotiations between these countries is critical to ensuring, to understanding first, what are the consequences of not sharing water or, you know, of, of, of the politics of climate, let's say, but also how can something different be put forward? Can climate actually be a way for these countries to try and come up with a solution because they all feel it, this is something that affects them all?
0: Mm. That's a good point to end on, the idea that the, the threat of climate change could be the common ground where the region begins to come together and, and, and deal with Not just the problem of climate change, but the problem of how you deal with the system, the governance that helps to sort things out. Um, Renard, thank you. Thank you so
1: much. Thank you for having me, Bill.
0: You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was Renard Mansour, a senior research fellow, Middle East and North Africa program and the program director of the Iraq Initiative at London's Chatham House. Renard will lead a conference on Iraq at Chatham House on the 14th and 15th of November. For more on the conference, check out chathamhouse.org. We launched our podcast in 2020, and two years on, we're now closing in on 100,000 listens with an audience in countries right around the world. So, a big thanks to all our listeners. And if you're a first-timer, check out our podcast library on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Amazon, and other platforms. In addition to our podcasts, the Arab Digest daily newsletter features the very best of mean experts, contributors like renard If you'd like a free trial of the newsletter, simply go to arabdigest.org. And if you enjoy what you find and want to join the club after your free trial period is ended, we're offering special rates to students, academics, and retirees. And subscriptions are now available to university libraries. If you're a student or academic, Check out if your university library has an Arab Digest subscription. If so, you can access the Digest for free. And if not, ask for your library to consider getting one. Check us out on ArabDigest.org and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest, essential reading from independent sources.